leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards in stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. The development of a biomarker to identify people with prostate cancer increased the diagnosis of the disease, but did little to suggest the appropriate course of treatment for individual patients. Kenneth Bienta, professor of urology and co-director of the John Hopkins University InHealth Signature Initiative, is trying to change that by using surveillance and extensive data gathering to continuously stratify patients and refine treatment approaches. Pianta, who will be speaking at the Precision Medicine World Conference in Mountain View, California, January 22nd to the 24th, discussed in health how it's transforming the treatment of prostate cancer patients and why it may be a model for applying precision medicine approaches to a broad range of diseases. Ken, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to uh, be with you. We're going to talk about individualized health or in-health prostate cancer as an example of how in-health can work and the upcoming Precision Medicine World Conference in Mountain View from January 22nd to 24th. I'd like to start with terminology, though. I, I still find there's a gulf in the way people use the terms personalized medicine and precision medicine. Do they represent one and the same thing to you? Do you use one term to mean one thing and the other term to mean something different? Well, I think uh, that initially when people started using the, the term personalized medicine and precision medicine, uh, what everyone was referring to was the concept that uh, we would treat the right patient at the right time with the right intervention. And that could apply to a drug, it could apply to a, a surgery, it could apply to any other, any type of therapy, really. And when the terms were first being uh, bandied about, so to speak, a lot of folks also used the term personalized medicine to represent the same idea. But a lot of uh, folks took umbrage about with that because uh, most physicians would say, you know, we sit across from a patient, we talk to a patient, we're very personalized with the patient. We are practicing personalized medicine. So because of that kind of concept, that, which is absolutely true, people basically stopped uh, using the term personalized medicine as much and has have actually evolved more to a this idea of uh, precision medicine. 
You've been involved with Johns Hopkins Individualized Health or InHealth Initiative. What is InHealth? So InHealth is uh, Johns Hopkins University approach to precision medicine. It's the idea that we will uh, understand an individual uh, not only at the time we first meet them and, and are starting to think about how to treat them precisely, but also to partner with them uh, across the trajectory of their illness and their lifetime to better understand not only how to treat that, the patient precisely now, but also how to incorporate that into a life plan. Concomitant with that, uh, we are using uh, big da data uh, from patients, which we know we get an inordinate a ton of data now from, uh, from patients, to try and incorporate the use of big data into uh, an information system that will allow us to help take better care of the patients uh, individually. Uh, and then as we learn about individual patients, understand what subsets of illness they fit into so that we can uh, take better learn from one patient to help uh, take care of the next patient. At the center of the in-health model are precision medicine centers of excellence. How do those work? So the precision medicine centers of excellence are really the concept is that we, from the very first contact with the patient, which is usually a phone call, we have started to, uh, A, understand their illness better to the extent that the patient does, uh, B, start to educate them about their, uh, their illness, C, understand what they want to get out of a visit to see us at the Precision Medicine Center of Excellence at Johns Hopkins, and then D, really partner with them or offer them a partnership where we not only uh, deliver precise, high-quality care to them, but we also partner with them for life to uh, understand how their illness evolves, how their disease evolves, how they evolve across uh, as they age, and then we're collecting serial biospecimens from them as well as serial outcomes and quality of life data so that we can better understand how the illness is impacting uh, them biologically and socially as well as collect that data across all patients for us to do a better job in the future taking care of people. Well, let's talk about prostate cancer as an example of how all this works. In the 1990s, there was a big surge in prostate cancer diagnosis because of the availability of the PSA test. What does the PSA test tell and not tell doctors? How instructive is it from a, a treatment point of view? Well, PSA is a, um, a wonderful tool. It's the best biomarker available in all of cancer and in, in some ways maybe all of medicine. When a PSA is elevated, uh, it tells us that something uh, is wrong with the prostate. It, it, and if a PSA is elevated, either a man has uh, an enlarged prostate that's uh, 
enlarging because of a benign condition called benign prostatic hyperplasia, uh, which can make it difficult for a guy to pee. Uh, it can be, PSA can be elevated if you have an infection on the prostate, either chronic or acute. And C, it, it, it can tell you that there's a, a cancer there. So in, in this country, uh, uh, every year, about a million men are found to have an elevated PSA. Uh, that uh, can lead to, uh, you know, a, a treatment uh, around, you know, does he have an infection or not? Does he have uh, just benign enlargement or does he potentially have cancer? Uh, about, uh, if you look at the, uh, results. So if about 10 million PSAs are done every year, about a million men have, um, an elevated PSA and are considered to be potentially at risk for having prostate cancer and uh, go on to get, uh, worked up for potential prostate cancer with, uh, that includes biopsies of the prostate. About 200,000 of those men every year, so 200,000 of the million, get diagnosed with prostate cancer. So that leaves us with what to do for those guys. And in the 90s, it was generally thought, well, if you have a diagnosis of prostate cancer, you need to treat it so that you either go on to have surgery or some form of radiation, whether it's external beam or, or uh, what's termed brachytherapy, which is implanting radioactive seeds. What uh, we have learned here at Hopkins, as well as uh, with other centers around the world, is that there are a significant percentage of men who, uh, of those 200,000 men who have prostate cancer that's really so low grade or in such tiny volume that they don't need to be treated right away. They can under, undergo an active surveillance program and be followed serially, and many and many, many of those men end up never needing treatment for their prostate cancer. The reason we started following those guys in an active surveillance program, and Dr. Bal Carter here at Johns Hopkins really founded that program and has been actively running it uh, since that time, is that we know that by age 80, if you have men who die of other causes, you know, old age or a heart attack or a car accident, if you look in their prostate, 80% of men have, at age 80 have prostate cancer in their prostate that never bothered them. It was never clinically evident. So the precision medicine that we've been bringing uh, on, on one end of the spectrum to prostate cancer is, can we identify those men early when they've had, at the, for example, a, a biopsy, and basically say, look, the chances of this harming you are so low, we don't want to subject you to the treatment uh, side effects of surgery or radiation Let's monitor you actively uh, or in, in an active surveillance program. And that has now been found to be a very effective and safe way to follow uh, many men who otherwise would have had 
uh, treatment right away. On the other end of the spectrum, there are men who are diagnosed with very aggressive disease, uh, even though they may have had the same PSA as that guy who we can follow with active surveillance. And we actually need to uh, not treat them with single modality care like surgery or radiation, but actually need to develop a multidisciplinary uh, plan for them that may include hormone therapy or chemotherapy or maybe surgery plus radiation or some combination of all of the above. So the in-health goal is to really identify those men who can benefit from active surveillance and also the men who need more aggressive types of therapy. And where we get into this idea of longitudinal care, uh, partnering with them across the their life is the fact that, you know, guys in the active surveillance program may evolve to need surgery or radiation at any, you know, at a given time. So developing an individualized treatment plan for them is very important. How much of a challenge is it for a clinician to make that decision about whether a patient is better off being surveilled or treated aggressively and what role does in-health play in getting to those answers? Yeah, so that's a great question. So what what we're doing in, in health is developing uh, tools uh, based on collecting data from all of the uh, thousands of men that we've are following in the active surveillance program to help patients and their physicians understand when a guy comes in with specific data or a specific set of characteristics, you know, what the, how bad it looks, this cancer looks under the microscope, how much was present, what was their PSA, um, what's their age, what, uh, do we have any other data about PSAs in the past, and we can develop algorithms using uh, the data we've collected from all of our other patients and the systems that, information technology systems that Hopkins has put in place to support individualized health, and we've basically developed visualization tools that are available to not only the patient, but also a physician who may not have as much experience to be able to say, let me put in my guy's data and basically here's the answer to what uh, our best experts would do and why, and then showing that in a user-friendly fashion that basically says, look, I um, here you can see on the computer screen and I'll uh, print this out for you, you know, you literally have a 1% chance of having an aggressive cancer if we do another biopsy and a 0% chance of really, you know, having any harm done to you by this prostate cancer. Is there something about prostate cancer that makes it particularly well-suited for in-health? Yeah, I, I, I think... Um, what makes prostate cancer really well, situ well situated for in health is that uh, basically 
we we start with this diagnosis of prostate cancer and really in health recognizes that many subsets of prostate cancer exist and we have to identify which subset a man falls into low grade very low grade or low risk very low risk high risk high grade cancer uh, or intermediate you know grade cancer and each one of those subsets requires a different decision about how to take care of it and so what you instead of lumping everybody under the term prostate cancer we start to subset the men into six different categories or five different categories of prostate cancer, each of which has its own decision network, data supporting that decision, as well as, uh, you know, how to move forward with treating them. So it's a great example of how to not just call somebody, uh, you know, give them one diagnosis, where one treatment, you know, sort of fits all. What's the patient's role in health? What, where do they fit in, and, and what demands are made on the patient? So, so the I, I don't think that necessarily demands uh, for the patient are the right word. What we're really uh, first and foremost doing is setting up uh, the best care possible for them and and then having a set of tools, you know, visualizations that help explain to the patient why this is the best uh, treatment decision for them uh, or makes it easy to help them choose between different treatment options. The, what we're really, uh, we're not, so we're not demanding anything of them. At the same time, we're offering we're, and we're asking them to partner with us to share uh, in an anonymous fashion uh, their, you know, blood or urine or other biospecimens as well as uh, data on their quality of life and outcomes as they move through these different treatment paths uh, over their lifetimes so that we can help take care of people better down the line. So... There's no real demands per se. Rather, we're asking them uh, to form a partnership with us that does include, you know, filling out a uh, quality of life survey, every, you know, every few months, as well as giving us biospecimens, uh, uh, you know, into the future, but not in any fashion that would be considered um, difficult. I take it at one hand, this is about stratifying patients, determining which patients with a given condition would benefit from a specific course of action. It's also about gathering lots of data to better predict outcomes and design treatments on a very individualized basis. How do you pool and update data so that clinical decision-making reflects the best understanding of where we are right now and how evolutionary a process is that? At some point, do treatment decisions become refined to a point where the data stabilizes. Yeah, so Hopkins is investing uh, heavily uh, uh, in terms of dollars as well as uh, human capital manpower support to build uh, a precision medicine analytics platform to support 
in health and, and the precision medicine centers of excellence so that data can be entered and iterated in real time and uh, is available to clinicians and patients um, as we learn more and more. There are, I think, um, uh, you know, instances where uh, in, in medicine where you can reach uh, what you think is an equilibrium of uh, we need we know all we need to know and we know how to treat that. Um, I haven't seen it yet, though. <laughs> um, uh, from the standpoint of almost in all cases, is there is are there options? Um, and you know, there's always new medicines that are coming along. Um, so what really becomes uh, a new surgical techniques and new radiation techniques? So what really becomes important? Uh, to be able to react to new medicines and new treatments is that we've collected data in, in a, as uniform way as possible and as comprehensively as possible that we can then apply our, the data we have on all the patients previously to um, understand how we should change uh, our care when a new treatment becomes available. So medicine is, is art, an art and a science, and it's rarely at equilibrium, and nor do we want it to be. How transferable do you think this approach would be to other health conditions, and, and what will it take to change outcomes in a meaningful way? So um, I, we, we are betting that the in-health model is going to be, uh, and the, the in-health model and the precision medicine centers of excellence are going to be very transferable to other diseases uh, within Hopkins Medicine, uh, first and foremost. Uh, so any analytics platform we build, for example, has to uh, be usable. Uh, they can't be one-offs. They have to be usable uh, across other diseases and across other patients. And then as we build those uh, uh, platforms, those information technology platforms, and the analytics around them and how we collect data and how we apply that data, we would like to be able to validate that in other systems and uh, in, other, in other health systems as well as school, medicine, medical schools and hospitals. And indeed, in prostate cancer, we've uh, certainly already done that um, as we, uh, you know, ask other uh, folks with active surveillance programs to use, uh, you know, our tools and see how they work in their systems. It's also true uh, in uh, uh, head and neck cancer where we've, uh, again, developed better ways to predict uh, toxicity and have exported that to other uh, health systems already. Uh, so there are multiple, uh, we think, again, we don't want to build an ivory tower that everybody has to come to us. We want to build a, a system that is uh, exportable. Um, you know, one of the goals, one of the things we've realized uh, here and what in health goal is, is that Hopkins was founded, you know, 125 years ago by, uh, 
William Osler, who's really considered to be the father of American medicine and one of the, you know, in his time was the greatest clinician and greatest physician uh, uh, in, in the U.S. and maybe the world. And what we've developed over the last 125 years is that the, many of the best and brightest physicians have not only trained here but work here. Uh, and so, and that is why play, uh, Hopkins is uh, uh, a great referral center. People come from all over the world to uh, get their care because they want to see a specific doctor who has, you know, great knowledge in an area. But the goal of InHealth is to say, well, how do we export that physician's brain and the way they give care? so that we can develop treat, treatment pathways that really take advantage of that person's experience and instinct, get the data to demonstrate that their way is better, and then export that to physicians and patients around, uh, around the world. So we're trying to bring data to Oslerian medicine if that makes any sense. <laughs> You're sharing the Precision Medicine World Conference session on informed health decisions through creating a learning ecosystem. What do you hope people take away from that session? What I hope that people will take away is that uh, this is, that we can learn uh, to how to subset patients better how to collect data on those patients uh, in partnership with them that can uh, lead to better tools to inform them about their decisions, uh, the decisions they need to make as well as their clinicians, and that we can build analytics platforms that uh, allow that to, to happen in an iterative fashion, which is really what a learning health system is all about. The Precision Medicine World Conference 2018 will be held in Mountain View, California from January 22nd to 24th. For more information, go to pmwcintl.com. Kenneth Bianta, Professor of Urology and Co-Director of the Johns Hopkins University In-Health Signature Initiative. Ken, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.